Hey, how's it going? This is Skinner. Join me on Fly Fidelity as we have a cool conversation about creativity, mental health, and the bizarre and treacherous journey of being a creative person in 2020. It's going to be fun. Come on, man. Hey, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fly Fidelity. I'm your host, Luke Bailey. Incredible content for incredible times, and make sure you follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud if you aren't already. Also, make sure you check us out at flyfidelity.co.uk. And now for the main event. Joining us on this episode, we speak to Oakland-based artist Skinner for an extended conversation about his illustrious career and some of his latest projects. Unfortunately, there are one or two social media notification alerts at the 60-minute mark that couldn't be remedied, but rest assured, these are few and far between. Enjoy the conversation. There's a strong possibility that there's somebody listening whose introduction to your work was by chance of seeing you appear in Feels Good Man. For anybody not familiar with the art of Skinner outside of seeing you in a documentary, can you take us through the first time you consciously wanted to pursue creating art for a living? Uh, well, I think everybody, uh, <laughs> if you're kind of a slacker, you know, a weird uh, slacker artist type of person. I think there's a moment in your life where you go, wait, am I going to just be poor forever and not like my life? And then, and then you look around and go, wait, what can I do? And uh, I had no college education. I had no nothing really going on. I was teaching art to uh, people with developmental disabilities at an art program. And the artists teachers that I was working with were like maybe 20 years older than me and I had to make the decision do I want to try to be an artist for a living and dig deep and see what I got in me or am I gonna just be like them and kind of like work here forever because I knew I was like this is all that is really like there for me this is my future so I just kind of decided to uh try to pursue the art thing and this was while juxtapose magazine the the sort of lowbrow art magazine was at the the peak of what it was you know able to culturally impact and stuff so i just i just kind of went with it and it opened up a can of worms and i made a bunch of different friends and uh, all these different artists and musicians and people asked me to do different things and it kind of expanded into this sort of bizarre life of uh, 
music videos and films and comedy and acting and animation and, and paintings and uh, design work and voiceovers and uh, just every just everything. It kind of just opened up like a beautiful flower, man. It really did. You <laughs> mentioned Juxtapose magazine, which, by the way, was my introduction to your work and the stages that you speak of within your evolution. What, what about your background? I'm curious as to what your background is. Would you say you grew up in a house that lent itself to working in art? Can you talk about maybe your upbringing and being a product of a creative family? What was the situation behind growing up creatively? Yeah, well, my mom and my dad, I lived in a very, very rural town called Cool, California, which is in the like foothills of where the gold rush started in California. And it was, um, it was a little chaotic. My dad was like kind of a crazy drug addict dude, but he was, um, uh, he was into, he, he could see that I liked weird fictional stuff. So he would, you know, support that. I would watch Ultraman and the incredible Hulk TV show. And nice. I was into all Godzilla and everything. I was just, I really went into it. And, uh, I just started drawing as a sort of extent, uh, extension of my excitement, I guess you could say, about fiction, about anything other than the mundane um, goings-ons of reality, which is, as we all know, is very burdensome sometimes, especially if you're a little kid in, in an uncertain environment. So, yeah, I just would draw, and then uh, it kind of became a thing at a young age that people were encouraging me to do. They're like, Oh, you've got a little talent there. Like, that's cool. You can draw a dinosaur. So it's just like dinosaurs and tanks and ninjas <laughs> and, uh, nice. and um, you know, creatures and scenes and stuff. And back in the day, computer paper was, uh, I don't know if you remember this. I don't, I actually don't know how old you are, but I'm uh, Oh, 35. Okay. You're old enough um, to know when computer paper was all connected in a stack. Did you ever see that? Absolutely, man. So I would, uh, <laughs> I would experiment by making the longest monster battle drawings I could by like pulling the paper out as long as I could 10, sometimes like 10 pages deep, you know, and I would draw like robots and dinosaurs drilling under the ground and creatures and ninjas fighting and he-man stuff and um and uh i was just a a very kind of isolated kid that just went deep into my imagination as i think like kind of like a survival mechanism to some of the like traumas of um of, of childhood mm. you know mm. it's everybody when you're a kid, you have zero control. You have zero agency in your life. And I think, you know, you find little ways of trying to control your, you know, your, your existence, your life. And, and the way that I could do that was by drawing a little Hulk Hogan <laughs> or like uh, drawing a brontosaurus or something. And um, it's really interesting to go back and look at some of these drawings because, like, I have... I have like some of them. My mom kept a bunch and it's just really, it's really like, I don't know. It's kind of cool because it's like visiting a different part of myself that I have not been in touch with for so long, mm. you know, 
But I like to think that whoever that little kid was, that little dude, a little skin, would be like very excited about what I do now and just be kind of like, whoa, that's crazy. You do that. That's cool. You know, so I know I'm I know I'm on the right track because the little kid inside of me, I think, would be um, would would be proud of what ended up happening instead of just being like a gas station like janitor or something which there's nothing wrong with that but i'm just saying that that, that's not for me it's not you know it's like like i didn't i didn't turn my back on my potential or whatever so so is there a um, moment or a point that you chose to commit this as a profession every artist of course has that transitional moment what what was that moment for you um to be a professional artist was um you know i uh what was happening? I was like, I was kind of doing art. It was a little bit of a process, but I started dating this woman when I was like 21. And she, she was like, uh, she was older and she had done cartoons for the New Yorker. And, um, she was like, Oh, you're an artist. She said, I said, yeah, I'm an artist. She's like, Oh, where's the art? You know? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I better do it, you know. And so I started doing it, and I was, like, making these very bizarre paintings um, and putting them in a yogurt shop, this frozen yogurt shop. <laughs> and uh, this guy, <laughs> this these people would, like, buy them. And I was like, all right, that's cool, because they were uh, paintings inspired by the supernatural. I was listening to a lot of Art Bell at the time, AM Coast to Coast. And uh, – um, and like I realized that the there was sort of a crux, you know. I was maybe twenty five, and I realized there was a crux between not making enough money, real not liking my job that much anymore. The people with the the developmental disabilities or like Down syndrome and you know schizophrenia and all this like they they never. I had nothing but reverence and love for them. Like they never got on my nerves. It was always like my boss or my coworkers or whatever, you know, and it was just uh, kind of unsatisfying after a while. And I knew there was something else, but this uh, crossroads between not having enough money, being dissatisfied and feeling like, <clears throat> you know, I'm not going to be young and good looking forever. <laughs> you know, it's like, you kind of like get this feeling of, man, I, I really like, I got to do something. I have to make my little mark or something, you know? So I think, I don't know. It was like, I kind of started to see the doorway or the window opening when Juxtapose magazine. And there was like, um, there was a little lowbrow art gallery. My friend John started called toy room art gallery in Sacramento. Well, by the way, this is all happening in Sacramento. And, um, I, it just sort of started to feel like, oh, I could do this. Like, I could maybe do this shit. And there was, like, a few people. My friend Jerry, Jerry had, like, a t-shirt company. There was, like, a few people. My friend Judd, who was a skateboarder, got me, like, a little skateboard gig. There was just, like, a small group of people that were my friends that were kind of, like, I think they kind of just, like, saw, like, oh, you're, like, you're really going to try to do this. I see that you're going to try to do this. And then they would give me like little, little opportunities or they would say a good, you know, um, 
like do a shirt design or a skateboard design or like a little art show somewhere. And then this, and you kind of pick up this momentum mm. and then you start to feel like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I don't, I have, I have nothing else. I have zero prospects. Um, I don't come from money. I don't, I don't have anything, you know? And, um, and so I, I just got insanely focused and I just felt like, you know what, this is it. If I'm going to have an art show, it needs to be better than everybody else's. If I'm going to have, if I'm going to do, if a company's going to ask me if, if I want to do a shirt design for them, I'm going to do three and then I'm going to try to sell them all three. It's like, I guess it was like, I started to see things like, um, creating opportunity when there was none, you know, or creating, creating way more opportunity when just like a small, you know, like the door opens barely at all. And then I just like kick it open. And I go, all right, let's do this. Let's do something, you know? And, um, it was, it was hard for a long time and it was, uh, strange and it was like the wild west you know where i was like painting and working 17 hours a day um after you know after i quit my job uh i was like all right i'm gonna do this i'm broke i would borrow you know 20 bucks from my mom and buy and just use that to buy burritos for the week and then i would pay her back the 20 bucks at the end of the week after i'd hustled up some money it was like really really lean times and it was in the middle <clears throat> when I quit my job to, to be an artist full-time um it was 2008 which was the financial collapse so it right. was like it was really really <laughs> intense I, bet. I was like holy shit you know and uh, everybody's like this you're you're doing this huh that's what you're gonna do now and i was like yeah man i think i can do that i think we got this i think i'm gonna do this shit you know and uh <laughs> it was, i don't know there's something there's something about it that it's like it's like it's so stupid to at that time to do that but it's also kind of like if you could do it then then you could do it anytime almost you know and i just wanted to see what i was made of and <laughs> it just worked out somehow and um i don't know i'm really grateful to every single person that's ever like extended any help to me when i was just like a little scrappy you know i mean even now anybody who's even gives me any kind of like kind words or just any encouragement i think i'm just so grateful for that because that so much of my life didn't really feel like there was any of that around and it felt so desperate felt like a desert you know and so you know when people are nice to me i just i'm like i'm trying to absorb it <laughs> i'm trying to say yes this feels good thank you you know when you reflect and access those memories we're talking about how do you think that extends and puts a battery in your back with what you're doing creatively now how do you think that those times informs your style today um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I never really, I never really felt like a, uh, naturally gifted illustrator or a naturally gifted creative person. Like I kind of felt like I was doing it because I had all this sort of, uh, excitement runoff from just fantasy stuff. And so I feel like the excitement 
and the sort of interest and the fascination and kind of the open mouthed like shock of seeing Ray Harryhausen films or mm. reading comics for the first time or, um, you know, essentially being in the golden age of, of independent weirdo cinema and film in the you know 80s and 90s. Um, I feel like I just was completely blown away by it. I was like very, in, you know, wrapped up in it. And I think that I never, it's almost better that I wasn't a naturally gifted creative artist person because I probably just would have done one thing. So I think that I just kind of uh, did what I had to do to survive until I got to a place where I was like able to, um, I don't know, put together uh, creative environments where I felt like not all the pressure was on me and, and my excitement would drive it, you know? So I think that like just being excited as a little kid, like never went away for me. And I never really got jaded on creating. I mean, I've been jaded on institutions. I've been jaded on, you know, uh, the, the sociocultural type shit you know, that I'm living, I'm existing in. I've been jaded by a lot of different things, but I've never been jaded by um, the potential to see something be manifested out of nothing and how fun it could be, you know? Yeah, yeah, the promise. Yeah, the promise of something, the promise of something better, you know? And maybe that's, maybe that's sort of like my religion too, because I never, I never saw, I never saw sitting around, praying and 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 having faith in something that wasn't there as like meaningful and but now i really do you know when you read like guillermo del toro he talks about all those all the monsters as like saints in his life and stuff that stuff starts to make sense to me after a while you know because those are the things that you're communing with i guess I think I think that I'm interested in monsters, not because they have a specific value. You know, I actually think they are uh, they have multiple values depending on how you use them. They are uh, uh, symbols of great uh, power. I think that uh, at some point, when we became thinking uh, creatures, we decided to interpret the world uh, by creating a mythology of gods and monsters. You know, we created angels, we created demons, we created uh, serpents devouring the moon. We created a mythology to, to make sense of the world around us. And monsters were born at the same time that angels or any of the beatific uh, uh, creatures and characters were created. So I don't assign them a specific value, uh, but I do, I am very mindful of the way I deal with them in the movies uh, and in the books because uh, I assign them a, a specific function and I try to take them to the extreme with that. You know, I make them victims or I make them sympathetic or I make them brutal parasites and they become a metaphor for something else. Obviously, monsters are living, breathing metaphors that for me, half of the fun is explaining them so socially, biologically, mythologically and so forth. One of the many projects you told me you were working on right now is a book paying homage 
to Charles Burns with Matt Fury and Will Sweeney. How's that coming along? Oh, yeah. Um, it's coming along great. Matt just sent me uh, all of his pages. It's based on this really rare book that Gary Panter and Charles Burns did called Face Tasm. And it's, um, it's basically like we all do these monster heads and then they're cut into three pieces, um, sort of exquisite corpse style. And then the, you can make, you know, limitless amounts of new faces by turning the different pieces of the pages. Like, you know, one page will have the eyeballs from one of my monsters, the mouth from, from Matt Fury's, uh, monsters and then Will Sweeney's nose part, you know, so it's really like a mix and match that's coming along good. Um, I think Will is halfway through his pages at last time I checked Matt's done. I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited. Like it's weird because I was a huge fan of these guys before I even became like, um, like, I don't know, like a successful artist or something. Like I remember Will Sweeney, who, in my opinion, is sort of the the contemporary living embodiment of the amazing lineage of English illustrators, like, you know, whimsical fantasy illustrators. And um, he did the boxed illustration stuff for Wonder Shows. And... As the 41st Infantry, they were the most elite U.S. fighting unit in Vietnam. But now, due to a woefully inadequate veterans' benefit system, they're living on the streets, and they're known as Hobo Ops. And I don't know if you're familiar with Wonder Showzen, that subversive TV show that PFFR created years ago. But he, all of his artwork, I was like, opening, I opened up the, I couldn't, I've never seen his style before. And I was looking at it, and I was like, what is this? This, this shit is crazy. And then, um... It just sort of planted in my brain like a little, um, like a little memory. And then every time I would see Will Sweeney, I'd be like, "That's that guy! This is that guy that did the uh, Wonder Shows and box set." You know, and I, I just kind of like started to obsess about this guy's art because it's so unique. And then the opportunity came that I just sort of asked him if he wanted to do this book, and he said yes. And I was kind of, I was like. I was so blown away. It's a, it's so exciting for me, you know. I'm a, still a nerdy fan yeah. of of all these people. Just extreme nerd. <laughs> so it's coming along, man. It's coming along good. Got to come up with a name. Get get all the faces together. I don't know. I might ask um, Last Gasp if they want to publish that. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I'm just. I don't know. I'm just kind of excited. I mean, these are weird times. It's very strange because I don't, I mean, I'm doing a lot of things now, um, like way more stuff that I actually am enjoying, like um, working with cool comedians and bands and I'm doing all these different projects, but it also kind of feels weird to be so um, fulfilled in such a fucked up time of uncertainty for people. It's like, it's very, it's a very, uh, strange thing to navigate both, you know, feeling like super happy, but then being very aware and cognizant that 
the, the world is not doing good at it's all. upside down right now. Absolutely. Speaking of... <laughs> oh, my... <Yeah. laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just like... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Don't I started, be. I started to think, like, while I was talking about it, I was like, yeah, like, what I'm doing now, which is, like, an interview about me, like, being all happy and excited about my shit, and people are at home listening, going, like... Oh, good for you, dude. That's that's really great. <laughs> you forgot really we're awesome. in a shithole of a timeline right now. <laughs> yeah, so happy that you're doing well, man. <laughs> so with with this book, with this book that you've got coming out, I mean, these indescribable times aside, how many times have you found yourself going back, if any, to the work of Charles Burns? Not just as a way to stay faithful to his material but as a way to focus on a singular vision that you're delivering with this book. Oh, well, I'm always, I mean, you, you know, you like, once you get into Charles Burns, like you don't ever stop going back to it. Kind of, you know, it's like, uh, dude's a legend, man. Like, oh, yeah. I'm, I go, I go back to it all the time. Like I go back and reread, uh, black hole all the time. And, um, I mean, there's actually, a a book down the street at this art gallery. I was riding my bike the other day and I looked in and they had the, um, the life size edition of Charles Burns's, um, uh, black hole, like the actual reprints of like the artwork at the size that he made it. And I was like, man, I'm going to go, I got to go back and get that. I'm going to get that thing. So I'm going to go back, but yeah, you never, you never stop. You know, you, you gotta, it's, it's relentlessly compelling as far as like the perfection of it, the darkness of it, the like, it's fucking weird, man. And Gary Panther is like a cool, um, secondary ass part to that book because his stuff's like kind of loose and, um, outsider artist kind of. And, um, yeah, it's, I don't know, man. That book is cool. If you can get your hands on a on a copy of FaceTasm, you should check it out. No. Plus, I think that Charles Burns did this weird video. It's like in French. I think it's the only animated thing that that ever happened with his art. So if you ever if you ever can look that up, I mean, I don't know. I, I forget the uh, the name of it, but it's like it's like a French music video or something, but oh really? I don't know. He, yeah. He's kind of like one of those artists where you just, you wonder like, why, why hasn't he, why hasn't there been a ton of films or animations of his stuff? But then you realize like, it's kind of just not for that. It's just for comics, I guess. No, up here. What you digging for? Uh, it's a secret, kid, but I guess I can tell you. We're digging for buried treasure. Wow, really? How'd it get in Mr. Pinkster's backyard? Eh, it was put there by uh, monsters, yeah. This is monster treasure. So do you have any thoughts on the process of translating comics to screen, which goes without saying has very much a complicated and criticized past, is it possible to translate the work of Charles Burns to film or TV? Yeah, I mean, 
that's kind of like Alan Moore's argument is that like, you know, these are comics. These aren't supposed to be movies. Right. You know, this is, this is comics, but like, you know, Daniel Klaus, you know, his stuff was turned into movies and like, I don't know. Like, I feel like the movies are cool on their own, but you see that the, the, the way that they're interpreted is entirely different. You know, like uh, Daniel Klaus's comics are like, like so dense and ethereal and um, real weird. Mm. And Charles Burns is like so dense and um, morose. And uh, like, I just don't know how that could be turned into a movie where in any way it even feels like the book. You know, like, I don't I, like black hole. I mean, like, I don't know. I don't, I, I really don't know how you would do that. You don't see it. Well, like, so recently I saw, I mean, well, not recently, like a little while ago, I saw some Charles Burns, somebody made masks or digital sculpts of the characters that the kids that got the STDs from uh, the book, black hole. And they kind of change their faces and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. They should make a movie. But then you realize that the reason that Charles Burns' artwork is so intense is because of the shadows. And um, I don't know. There's just there's something about that where you're like, well, are they like you can't just have these kids walking around like it's a TV sitcom, like in a high school you know, um, like in the book, you can't, it's like, they're, they're going to have to create some kind of insane shadow Mm. situation. Mm. You would need the right cinematographer for it. Yeah. Like I almost feel like (laughs) it would be no, but you know what? It fucking, maybe that would be cool if they got somebody who the, you know, a cinematographer who is ultra dedicated to casting massive shadows all over these realistic faces all the time. Like actually, man, I'm starting to see it now. Uh, I think, I think this, there's potential for it, but you almost have to make it not work for cinema or something. Like I, I imagine if you broke the rules and then just like say in the middle of the day and the kids are walking around in, in, you know, the, the hallway and there's lockers everywhere and there's all the kids and they're bustling around, but it's just dark. It's just super dark in there. <laughs> like the drawings that would be, uh, that would be really interesting actually. Well, do you, have you seen that movie dead man with Johnny Depp? Last night, my youngest son, Charlie was gunned down in cold blood. The gutless murderer, one Mr. Bill Blake, also stole a very spirited and valuable horse. I want him brought here to me. Alive or dead don't matter, though I reckon dead would be easier. Johnny Depp, Gabriel Byrne, Robert Mitchum, in Dead Man. The hunt is on. He came west to find a new future. How do you do, sir? I'm Bill Blake, your new accountant. <laughs> what he found instead... Charlie. ...was trouble. Don't! Now there's a reward on his head. You were a poet and a painter, and now you are a killer. 
and a band of bounty hunters on his trail. I don't give a shoot who saw what and who did what or who did who. Good God, I'm hit! That weapon will replace your tongue and your poetry will now be written with blood. Sir, would it be presumptuous of me to ask you if we were autographed? It's not a bad illustration of you, William Blake. Johnny Depp gives a riveting performance, says the LA Times. You William Blake? Yes, I am. Do you know my poetry? Dead Man. Original soundtrack by Neil Young. You know, I've had it up to here with this Indian malarkey. I haven't understood a single word you've said since I met you. Not one single word. Are you sure you have no tobacco? You watch that movie, which I think is the, the amazing work of art. And tell me if there isn't parts in that movie that you don't think would feel appropriate for a black hole adaptation. Because I think I think that there now that I'm thinking about it, there's there's a couple of parts in there where I'm like, this might be close to it. But you know what, um, Daniel Klaus, um, so Daniel Klaus lives in my town. He's this sort of legendary, he's kind of an elusive figure, you know, but, um, so I see him, he goes into the comic book store that I go into and I saw him in there, um, and, uh, with Richard Sala, I see Daniel Klaus, like I would see him in there before COVID, you know, and then. Um, Richard Sala passed away like a couple months into COVID. And I'm like, I have this, I have this like fantasy in my head where, cause they would always be hanging out together and they would like, you know, I, and I kind of talked to him one time and stuff like that, but you don't want to like act like, you know, who these people are because they're like unicorns, you know, they'll, you'll scare them off and stuff. But like, I have this like ongoing fantasy in my head where, I write a letter to Daniel Klaus because his friend passed away. And I just want to be like, Hey, if you want a comic book friend just to hang out and talk about comics yeah. on comic book day, like I want, I, I would love to be that, that person because we both like, I <laughs> not like a stalker, but I, I, I watch what he likes. I look at what he likes and he loves, he loves the same stuff as I do. Right. But I'm like, but you know, it's like one of those things where like, <laughs> you like in your head in your head you go oh this will be such a cool thing and like he's gonna accept it and he, he's gonna like me and we're gonna be friends but like in real life what happens is you go hi hey i'm sorry your friend died i want to be your new friend can i be your new friend <laughs> you know <laughs> and, like, and he runs away <laughs> yeah he like runs away or something so i'm like and it's funny because i i I'm so I like my brain is so so bonkers that like I will create every possible scenario for something to go right and I will create every possible scenario for things to go wrong. Until it goes and wrong, I, right. And then I'll just say, uh, I'm just gonna go easy. I'm not gonna bother this guy, you know. Um I feel like you I'm like a, do I'm it. like a Yeah, I mean I think like yeah, I mean, just to be kind, maybe just yeah. to be nice, because I don't, I, I, you know, I, the idea, the idea would be that I would write a letter and be like, hey, you know, I, you know, I, I, I talked to you a couple times. I saw you, you were with your buddy, and you guys would go to comic book, you know, comic books on release days on Wednesdays, and I see you guys, and 
I know he passed away and um, I just want you to know that, uh, you know, uh, that it, you know, it, there's no possible way that anybody, I'm not looking to replace your comic book friend, <laughs> but, but like, but like, if you just want some um, companionship to talk about comics and be excited about new comic book day, like um, I live down the street, you know, whatever. So, you know, something like that where it's like easy, but like I could see him getting this letter and being like, oh, that's sweet. And then just like throw it in the trash or something. What about the proposal of a one month's trial, much like a Netflix? Oh, dude, I love that. Wow. Yeah. What about that? Oh, man. Okay. That's a good idea. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then and then also make a little bit a little comic about all the different ways that I'm that it's not going to go wrong. Yeah. And that I'm not and I'm not a psycho. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I can vouch oh for you. God. I can vouch for you. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> this is so crazy. But yeah, so I don't know, but it's just kind of cool. I mean, yeah, um, it's just, you know, I don't know. Like, it's also one of those things where I like outside of the fact that I am like a fan of this person. But if I know that anybody's suffering, I kind of like will try to go out of my way to be like, hey, can I help? Can I? You do you need anything? I'll make you some cookies or something. No, which which, <laughs> yeah. which is a necessity right now, given the timeline we're in and everybody experiencing these emotions, you know, across the world. Of course, we're going to talk about that as we navigate throughout this interview. You're also working yeah. on a Clark Ashton Smith comic book adaptation. How much inspiration have you found in Trump's period of America to explore this work in this project? Oh well. Honestly, that uh, the Clark Ashton Smith comic is an a adaptation of the Seven Geases, right? Which is um, pretty cool. Um, that's in its infancy because I'm trying to get I'm trying to get this other comic done, this other anthology done. But like the the it's interesting you ask that because uh, the Seven Geases um, is is this uh, I guess a Geese is an Irish is. Um, like an Irish term for magical compulsion, which um, it's sort of like if you put a geas on somebody, it kind of like makes it kind of forces that person to do your bidding. It's like what a witch would do to a person or a, a warlock or something. And in the story, this is so it's so interesting. I never thought about this connection, but in the story, the, the main character, he goes, into this sort of cave underground area and experiences these different sort of demonic deities, like these like strange God creatures under the ground. And um, so he goes to the first one, which is Sathagwa, which is this giant like toad bat God creature. Um, and he, cause he gets captured and he gets taken to Sathagwa and Sathagwa is says, you know, I don't really have, I don't, need this guy i don't have any desire for this person um you know he t the the bird there's a bird type creature and he goes hey will you take him down to the spider creature god down the street you know down in the cavern even further and he goes tell him it's a gift from me and uh and essentially what happens is 
that's the magical compulsion to be sent out. You know, you're a gift now to these other gods. But he keeps getting handed off subsequently to all these different um, malevolent beings under the ground. And, uh, and at the very end, he, he gets away. But he gets away only to fall into this, like, never-ending abyss. Oh. <laughs> and I was thinking, besides the fact that there's some, like, very dark humor in the um, nihilism of some of Clark Ashton Smith's writings, but that, uh, that it kind of, in a way, felt like in Trump's America, right. you do feel like you're being handed from idiotic um, news article to idiotic news article to um conspiracy to uh horrible policy remake to disgusting um you know headline to like horrible cons it's like and, and then like and then like all of a sudden like people that you knew in high school are now like queuing on people <laughs> And like, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so like, and at the end, but at the very end, you get handed to the abyss, you know, of Joe Biden. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is undeniable. This is an undeniable thread that we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, it does feel that way. And I think that um, it's like there, it's not, it's not a coincidence to me that you know, being like, I'm, so I'm, I'm 42. I'll be 43 in March, but I'm kind of like, wait, wait, Gen March X. the what? Wait, what? March the what? Mar oh, oh, March 20th. Oh, okay. I'm the 10th. Oh, okay, cool. You're like a little, uh, Pisces. Wait, last. Yeah. yeah Pisces. Yeah. Guy. Fish wizard represent. Oh, fish wizard. Right on, man. Yeah. I'm a uh, last day of Pisces, first day of Aries. So nice. I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm being torn apart, but in, in my psyche, but, um, right carry on continue <laughs> so so um yeah it's it's like i so i'm like the like kind of like the ass end of gen x right where it's like i'm kind of like a like end of gen x beginning of millennial which you were kind of like an elder millennial i guess right right which i hate admitting to by the way no, no but it's but it's okay um because like you it's it's hilarious because gen x is sort of considered like the forgotten generation because there's like such a um war between the boomers mm -hmm. and millennials but what's happening is millennials are now aging out of relevance in my opinion where the zoomers all the pressure is now on the zoomers so it's going to be like boomers versus zoomers and the tiktok generation oh my god yeah tiktok Ugh. which 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 uh which we should i should touch on because it's sort of the fractal thing where as a gen x person i have a large chunk of my life that is referential in my experiences being before the internet yeah and and knowing the boomers before they were like officially like in charge of stuff and how they've kind of transformed into these sort of bizarre, um, you know, internet come lately, Facebook zombie, you know, they're red pilling themselves. They're very, you know, they're very, 
George Carlin would be ashamed of them is what I guess you could say. But, um, yeah. so, so like the, t- <laughs> the TikTok thing though. And as far as the fractals are, everybody is sort of, um, so burnt out on reality and so burnt out on, um, I think, uh, the, the helplessness that I feel like is kind of ever present in people day to day that everybody is sort of getting into like cosplaying and fantasy. And that's like, like that's where all your QAnon shit comes from. That's where all this like proud boy shit comes from. All these TikTok uh, people who are like essentially trying, everybody feels empowered to kind of be the person they see themselves as. And it's really interesting to see people in America that I, 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 you know, don't get to see. I'm in Oakland, one of the most liberal, inclusive, fun, beautiful cities on earth. It's like, I, there's just, I can be with any community I want here and, and, and it's not difficult. I, all I have to do is like try to step into it and it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. But like you see people on TikTok (laughs) that are like, like fucking famous people that like live in a trailer park that are like meth heads that are basically like, you know, like, you know, see themselves as patriots or whatever. It's like, it's, you know, like the meth head Captain America who's singing patriot songs and, and getting famous. And it's, um, I mean, it's really, uh, it's more bizarre, entertaining, tragic, and hilarious then the human mind is like really comfortable with dealing with, you know? And I think that there's a, there's a heavy, heavy price to pay if you don't keep a, an eye on your cynicism. And, you know, I, I, I see that like just the amount of information that we take in can overwhelm our ability to just feel joy because it's, it's actually engineered to make us feel anxiety so that we are in, constantly in a place of action. You know, if that action is to buy something or like something online or, you know, continue to be a part of the rhythm or of, you know, of going online and looking at stuff and uh, being in it and like whatever. So it's like, it's very nightmarish because it's all, um, it's all like at the, it's like everybody is doing their best cosplay impersonation of the way that they see themselves. But it's like people are making billions of dollars off it. And it's like, it's so fun. It's wild. You mentioned action. What's so crazy about this time right now is that TikTok has essentially become the voice of action on the front line in what's essentially a new Cold War. Oh, yeah. I mean... (laughs) So I don't really know. Um, I'm not on TikTok. I'm essentially... I only go on Instagram and uh, post stuff and look at people's things. And then I let that whatever my Instagram post go to Twitter. I do not go on Twitter. And I don't... And I let my Instagram post, I link it to my Facebook fan page. And then I interact on there very marginally with people. Um, nice. Because I'm, I'm trying to just not get in deep on this shit, um, even though I'm already on Instagram too much. 
but it's very fun for me, you know? And anyway, so, um, so, but like with the TikTok stuff, like I always sort of saw it as, um, like just like a place where like kids would be all crazy and young and stuff. But the, the more that I look at it now, the more I'm like, Oh, it's, it's like, it's just like new weird place of funneling information and then, and then like kind of like fueling people's delusions. And it's, I feel like it's like, it's weird because the apps are kind of like bottlenecking our ability to understand shit. You know, it's, it's like, like who you are becomes like a series of actions in a day. You go on TikTok, you say you hate, uh, the deep state you 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 see that people like it you look at somebody else's thing you like that and then you like eat a tv dinner or whatever it's like i don't it's just like your life kind of becomes like a very minimal series of events throughout the day and you gotta wonder like is this really like what's the best course of like experiencing the universe from the very unique opportunity of being a human for a short amount of time Mm. i don't know Mm. not for me you know (laughs) but i will say i'm fascinated by these people so i am no better i am no better than them i am like listening to podcasts about conspiracy theories i am like like i listen to prank shows where you know not even a show where this guy like pranks right wing fucking radio show host i listen to uh cynical leftist podcast I, you know it's like i'm not like i am i mean i laugh a lot and i have fun and i'm really nice to my cats and i'm sweet to my wife and i try to encourage strange people i don't know and be nice but and, and that, i mean i guess that's got to be enough you know that's got to be enough for me or else i'm just gonna you know feel discontent but i i don't know man i like i kind of enjoy watching the show and i feel like really my main duty is to like to not get um depressed by it and then be available to alleviate suffering of anybody else like that's i'm trying to like simplify my life to the point where i'm just like does this fall into the category of me helping or not helping or being sad or not sad or you know it's like if i can just simplify that and then just be cognizant and very aware of, of what my intentions do to others or, or help or not. It, you know, it's like it's it becomes a very obvious day to day life for me. Bringing it back to Clark Ashton, do you think there's an underlying nihilism in his work that people are now connecting with? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I think people are like, there's def- we're definitely at like peak Lovecraft right now. You know, yeah. it's um, 
and Clark Ashton Smith was Lovecraft's favorite author, contemporary author at the time and stuff. But, um, you know, the nihil there's nihilism, but it's also like, so he grew up in Auburn, California, which is actually where I grew up at. And, uh, there in, I have like kind of this like parallel appreciation or it might be even a projection that I've put onto him, but a desperation to find relief from the mundane life of like small, a small town where there's not much complexity or explorative creativity or culture allowed, you know, um, he, you know, he, there's this quote, he, he called Auburn, uh, hell be damned and heaven be spitted place. Mm-hmm. And I totally related to it as soon as I heard that quote, because I was desperately looking for something else and there was nothing to be found. So the desperation of which, you know, is coupled with nihilism, which is coupled with isolation. He didn't even have lights or electricity or running water in his house until the fifties or something. It was like crazy. Um, you know, I think it's there, but like, there's like a joyfulness in how opulent his vocabulary is, Mm. you know, it's like, you know, only, only good sometimes can strive from negativity. It's like, that's why, that's why in, you know, in America you have like the emergence of jazz, blues, black culture, hip hop, all these exuberant, joyful extensions of the human experience comes from uh, these environments that are desperate, shitty. Um, You know, you know what I mean? It's like, like, I really do feel that way. It's like, uh, so much good can come out of all this darkness because it's sort of like, that's kind of the, the moment the human, you know, the human spirit really shines is like, Oh, when all this bad stuff is happening, you know? And, and so you kind of like, you root around in the dark, like a little depressed (laughs) pig. (laughs) 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 You find, you, (laughs) you find your way, you find your way out. You find, you, you know, you root around and root around. You find your way out. You go, okay, there's a little place over here. All right. There's a little, there's a little sunlight over in this direction, you know, and then you get out, you go and you keep running and you, you know, and, and before uh, you know it, there's a McDonald's on the corner. For, yeah, before you know it, you've been turned into delicious bacon. No, I'm just kidding. No. But like, I think that um, it's it, it really is that way. And, and you know, it's so it's it's interesting. Like, that's kind of almost a gauge, too, where I mean, hilariously and darkly enough, when I meet people and I can tell, um, you know, there's like I'm just like, ah, oh, this person just I'm having a hard time clicking with this person. Uh, and I realized like, oh, okay. Like I can kind of see that like they, they haven't, they haven't spent much of their life in this sort of like darkness, you know, this right. sort of suffering or whatever. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, somebody's like, why don't, you know, like, I'm like, you know, why aren't we friends? You know, I'm like, I don't know, man. I just, I don't, I just think like maybe your parents loved you too much or something. I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's too pure, <laughs> you know, it's like, 
it's like you got too much good shit going on man like i don't know you know so, so but it but you know i think that that it's it's not though but it's not really like where you come from what your darkness is or what your experience it's like really what you're doing in the moment because i i know a lot of people who have been loved their whole life who are like just absolutely fabulous people that you know but you can, you do it is weird like if you've experienced trauma in your life you can kind of smell it on other people and you can kind of feel like oh okay like yeah this is this person like yeah like i i feel more comfortable around this person right. um for some reason and i don't but i try not to you know i try i, I don't try to like have bias against people that don't it's just something that I need to work on really like allowing everybody into my heart, not just, you know, twisted little depressed pigs, you know, it's like, you know, I gotta, I gotta let all the, like the butterflies in too, I guess. I mean, you're talking about but, a feeling that you, you're talking about a connection. Now speaking of connections, you've been very much vocal about the progress and process of this new anthology horror book. What can you tell me about skin crawl? Skin crawl. Um, well, actually, uh, that was sort of a process I had, um, I started before, um, the last, uh, I would say like the last two or three years I experienced like some of the worst depression in my life. And it was coupled with, um, a lot of projects I had been toiling on very hard, uh, going, uh, not going anywhere and being canceled and not working. And it was sort of a development that I created where I said, you know, I've written a lot of stories. I've done a lot of my own stuff, but I keep trying to involve institutions in, in, in my progress to, to pay me to, you know, to like try to sell like a, um, a music video idea or a TV show or a cartoon or a show, you know, all this stuff. And I just realized like, why don't I just use my skills and make, and my great love of comics and honor the comic book form and just take all these stories that I've written that have not been realized and put them into a comic book anthology. And I was listening a lot to this uh, YouTube channel called Cartoonist Kayfabe. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. Nice. And um, yeah. And and I was just I, I don't know, like that channel and listening to it, it really reignited my just long, long love affair with comic books and the nineties and comics in the nineties and wizard magazine and all this like very, um, hilarious stuff that I adored and I used as escapism. So I was like, you know, I love Charles Burns. I love Bernie Wrightson. I love horror illustrators. Mm. I love all this shit, EC comics, horror movie, all this stuff cosmic horror i love um tales of redemption i love all this stuff and i thought why don't i write this out i'm gonna get my comic going and uh, i started um writing everything out i sent so pete von shawley is a comic book artist but he was a imagineer at disney he does storyboards for um you know, child's play, nice. Chuck, like all, yeah. Like he's like been in, in, um, in Hollywood doing, you know, all this design work and stuff for, for decades. And I made friends with him and, uh, he 
did a lot of the breakdowns for me. So like that's loose, loose pencils. And, um, and then I started to pencil on top of it and get it going. And, um, and I just kind of, I'm at the point where I'm coloring it in it all in, but it's, it was this sort of experience of empowerment because I think that I've always been a little bit, uh, fearful or resistant to, to kind of like stepping into my own power in a way, I guess. And, um, because when I do music videos or if I do, um, I don't know, shows or TV shows or, or I don't I, like, I don't know, just all these projects there, there's always a bunch of people there to help me. And I lean heavily into them because I am insecure about a lot of things. I, like I, there's so much I don't know. And I don't want to be a Dunning Kruger, you know, freak who's just like thinks he knows what he's doing and then makes a giant mess out of everything. So I, I lean heavily into stuff to try to learn. But this was um, doing this comic was sort of a step into like, all right, man, like you're going to have to write this thing. You're going to have to write all the dialogue. You're going to have to do the penciling. You're going to have to do all the inking. You're going to have to color it in. You're going to do, you're going to learn how to oil paint to do the cover. You're going to make it, you know, so it's like, it's really this sort of, um, rite of passage for me, I guess. Um, so I'm just doing that, but I've also, you know, I've gotten to the point too, where I'm like, Oh, well, I, I know it's easier for me now. I have more confidence and I know that the next issue is going to be just is even better. So I don't know, man, it, it's cool. Like I'm, I'm afraid and excited about doing things independently um, I think that I'm really afraid of, uh, stepping into my potential and my power because I think that like, there's this sort of void inside of me that's always kind of like waiting for an authority figure or a parent or something to step in and help me. And I think it's a part of, of, of me just needing to like grow the fuck up and just do it all, you know, and do it and just, you know. Like, at least this project, specifically. Because, like, you know, clearly other things that I'm doing, I can't do all of it. But, you know, even even this, like, in relation to... I, I want to start doing this, like, podcast slash Patreon thing to um, try to take some, some, some time away and build a community away from social media and stuff to do something that I feel like will be more constructive. But even while I'm getting that ready... I'm feeling the same anxiety that I feel when I'm trying to do like the comic or something all myself Right. or I'm like, I'm really afraid. Cause if this, if this is a, if this doesn't work, then I just, it just feels like it, it's going to be too much of a, of a blow to me. You know, I don't know. It's scary. And you know what? I, I know in my mind that the fear is a thousand times bigger than the reality. So, you know, it's a, it's hard, man. The brain, is, the mind is a terrible master. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, completely agree. I know the feeling. So let me ask you this. Do you worry? Do you worry about outdoing your last piece of work or project so much so that it competes with your mental state and how you approach a new project? Um, I think there's a certain amount of just accepting what the things are. You know, it's like... Like, um, I'm not, 
like I think that each project, I mean, if you don't get good at just accepting that, you know, not everything is going to be the thing that you anticipate it to be, then you can kind of accept it for what it is and you won't drive yourself nuts. Right. Like, you know, sometimes I'll do some insane illustration and I'll be like, cool, I, I, this is fucking awesome. I did a really good painting. Like, I feel like this is like kind of where I want to go. But then I'm like designing maybe like some toy thing and the project requires me do less than what I feel like I'm capable of if I was painting. So I'm like doing a sort of representation of what my art is instead of my actual art, which is very strange, but you just have to go, okay, this is what this is, mm. you know, and not, and not compare it and not say, oh, I wish it was better. You just have to go, yeah, that's what that is. Anyways, next thing, you know, and um, I think like if, if you're doing your best at whatever the thing is that you're doing and you realize the limitations and have an understanding of that, then you, you can, you know, sleep at night. You know, instead of just go, ah, man, everything I'm doing now sucks. You just got to go, look, it's not all the stuff that I want to do. Because clearly, not everything, everything is like moving and changing all the time. So, you know, you kind of have to just surf that shit. You know, like working on, if I'm working on a little film or I'm working on my, like, I was working on this like video game with this guy, um, my buddy, and he, and he changed like a bunch of the designs that I had created to the point where I was just like, all right, man, like that's, if that's, you know, like if, if this is like where it's going to go, then that's where it's going to go. You know, it's not, it's not like somebody's going to be like, ah, this is not Skinner's project anymore. Right. Right. You know, it's like, nah, man, like he, this is, he's a part of the collaboration. Like this is, you know, this is the, the best. Yeah, this is the best we're doing for this thing, you know. I mean, it must be challenging bouncing back and forth between the aesthetics as frequently as you do with the many different projects you have your hands in creatively. Is it challenging? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, kind of recalibrating and getting present with something. You know, it's like if you go, you know, you go and you sit down and you're like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on this one thing for today for, you know, a couple of hours, whatever. And then you have to change and work on something else. It's like, you kind of have to give yourself time to acclimate to what that specific thing needs. And, um, that's why sometimes it's good. If, if I'm just kind of chilling, I can, I can think to myself like, Oh, you know, this would be a good time to, uh, to write out my ideas about this one thing. Right. So that when, when that, you know, when that project comes up, I just go, all right, this is, these are my ideas that I have for this. Instead of being like, oh, wait, I was just, you know, painting backgrounds for my horror film for, you know, eight hours. Now I got to go um, write dialogue for this other project or something. You know, it's like, you want to, you got to just, everything, it's like, they're all little plants in the garden, you know, <laughs> you got to keep watering them a little bit, make sure that they're all healthy and shit. And, um, frankly though, I'm, I'm actually extraordinarily spoiled because the people that 
I'm working with on the projects, all these different projects are complete geniuses in their own right. And so I just kind of go, all right, these are my ideas. This is what I think. Here's the stuff, you know, and they go, all right, cool. And then they just kind of like do it or they contribute their own thing or they, they throw in their own little flavor or they change the ideas or, um, you know, they, it's like, I don't like, I, I'm not gonna, um, if I was really going to do one of these projects, it would take all my time. Mm. You know, it would just take all my time. And I am just kind of using my career as sort of a platform for other people to, to collaborate with other people and be like, you know, ultimately, like, let's say all these projects go really well and they're all successes. Now all these other people have jobs, like full, full jobs. You know, like, like I got this guy over here, he's making a video game. This guy over here, he's, um, you know, he's doing toys. This guy over here is doing more, uh, doing stop motion. This person over here, we're working on a show. It's like, I'm just like, let's like, let's go, let's do it. Let's build, you know? Yeah, let's build. Let's fucking build. Like the Grim Reaper is coming. <laughs> the Grim Reaper is coming soon. I mean, let, let's know? talk about collaborations for a minute and take a step back. It's it's easy to make the connection between the subject of feels good man and the ownership that Matt Fury fought to maintain a peaceful oh, version of his character. You know, Ugh. there was a big battle, of course, between maintaining a peaceful version of Pepe the Frog. With the same token, you've been fighting to reclaim ownership over your character and peace of mind personally. Can you speak to your journey and confronting those obstacles in that battle? Oh, my, my character? Your character personally and how you fought to maintain your peace of mind over the past year in this. Oh, yeah. Oh, just me, the character right. of Skinner. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you got, yeah, sorry, I'm a very slow, I'm slow, yeah, I'm, I'm dense or thick. But um, uh, I think, like, the thing is, is... Uh, um, I have constantly been trying to f figure out what the character was. I feel like, uh, my whole life has been sort of this conflicted, uh, nihilism slash holding on to the promise and the idea of something better in my life. And that was all totally, um, I think it was all, uh, informed by whatever my brain chemistry was. And so essentially, um, my, my secret life, which is not my public life, um, is that I have been like clinically depressed and just, you know, frankly, just like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be dramatic, but yeah, like kind of like, you know, idealizing suicide for the majority of my life as sort of like, um, I always kind of felt like, well, it, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. I don't like my life. I hate, you know, essentially I don't like myself. I don't like anything. I don't know why I try everything I can, but if it gets too bad, well, then I could just like, you know, I just like whatever, jump off a bridge or something, which I, I'm not trying to go down the dark path. I'm just saying this is what led me to the Prozac. All right. But like, and I, I think that I mean, this is sort of timely because I guess suicides <laughs> are like really up like uh, hundreds of percents, um, which is so, so sad. But I think it says a lot about the instability of our world informing our emotional state. And 
when I was little, I experienced a, a pretty intense level of instability. And I was, I saw a lot of abuse. I saw a lot of things. I sustained a lot of abuse. And I think that it had, um, messed with my, the way that my brain operated, uh, at a young age. And I kind of went introverted. I got very, very introverted, which you would never know now because I'm so obnoxious, but I was very introverted for many years and I kind of stayed inside of myself and I was angry and I was suspicious and upset. And I was at a very young age, like searching for meaning. And there was just none for so long. And, uh, over the years, I found that when I would succeed and do good things, I would get like dopamine or serotonin or something. So I was like, wow, if I do good stuff, then I kind of feel better. So from a young age, I was kind of like overachieving as a, as a form of trying to get dopamine or something <laughs> like serotonin, you know? And, um, and, you know, I've, I've been with my wife for 16 years now and she was, and I could see that my dark, my kind of depression and this sort of secret world of just hopelessness that I was feeling was, was not only just getting worse, no matter what I did, but I could see that it was just affecting her so, so intensely and that like, I, that was just too much for me to bear really, you know? And, um, we started seeing this, this like cool counselor lady and she, and to, to, to like kind of see what, what I could, what could be done about me, you know, as, as the, as a big problem. And, um, I, and she said within like, you know, 10 minutes, she's like, well, of me talking, she's like, well, you don't sound like you're thinking clearly. You sound basically like the poster child for clinical long-term depression. And I was like, Oh, she's like, you need to get on medication immediately, you know, to see how, you know, if you can take, take this back in your life, which let me tell you, I had gone to see psychiatrists before, but because I was so high functioning, um, they were like giving me these like ultra mild, almost placebo and anti-anxiety pills that were like doing nothing. And, um, and I was like, wow, I just don't feel better, you know? And, uh, so, so I get on Prozac and within a, like within day, like two days, I could just feel my brain not foggy. It was functioning. I didn't feel like drugged out. I felt good. And over time I started to, um, kind of like, I felt so good and so connected that I was, I was feeling intensely emotional because it was like the first time in my life that I felt like I was absorbing just normal good feelings like people caring about me people loving me uh just like waking up in the morning and not feeling like the burden of having to endure another day you know it was really really strange and then I was getting this um I started to really mourn the loss of the the years of my life that I uh, didn't have that were just depression, you know, and I started to think about like how much damage have I done to my body and my brain and my psyche and like 
how have I showed up in the world as this sort of like anxiety ridden, you know, attention needing serotonin addict, you know, weirdo, you know, who's like wants attention because he just wants to feel good and doesn't know how and can't be present. And, you know, so it's like all this stuff was happening. And then I realized that so much of my struggle to just find myself in this life, life and to feel comfortable and to feel like an authentic fucking person was because my brain just wasn't working because it was like deprived of certain chemicals or it was deprived of just like functioning. And I think that a lot of people um, may find themselves in some of those same situations where you try every single thing you can, you know, you're like, I'm exercising, I'm going to therapy, I'm working, you know, really hard, I'm trying to be more social, I'm changing my patterns, I'm trying to change my behavior, blah, 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 and all this stuff, I'm uh, listening to Ram Dass, you know, recordings, it's like all this stuff, it's not gonna, it doesn't work, unless your brain is getting the right chemicals. And I think that I may have suffered um, a sort of neuron neuron uh, mutation type uh, malfunction at an early age when I basically experienced PTSD of seeing a lot of abuse, for, you know, happening and, and and violence in my house, and I just went inward and, and essentially never really experienced like a natural childhood where you're kind of like you know, excited about Christmas or you're happy to see your parents or you, you know, enjoy Cheerios or whatever. It's like, I was kind of like always waiting for something horrible to happen. And I was uh, like vigilant, hyper vigilant. And so now that I got on Prozac and it's been about seven months and I am like, con like I, I'm, the thing that I'm blown away is like I kind of like have woken up into this life that I created while I was ultra depressed. You know, it's like okay, here I am. Okay, I have this beautiful wife. I have these cool. Ca I have these cats. I have like a house. Like I have a like a career that functions. I haven't ruined all my relationships. Like I'm actually like friends with some cool people. They care about me. I'm like I'm loved by a bunch of people that in my community. I'm like like I. I, I can't believe it. Like, this is the life that I woke up to, you know? And, um, and so it's really interesting because I, I almost feel like there's so, there's so much of my life that was before COVID. So like COVID shut down, like shut, shut everything down. And then I got really happy from antidepressants and then you know, my personal work that I do with therapy and still an exercise, I still do all that stuff. Um, cause it's important, but the person that I found myself to be is like a pretty, pretty mellow, fun, kind person that doesn't feel shame 24 hours a day. You know, it's like, I I'm just, I'm really just enjoying it. And there's something kind of ironic and horrible that like I'm, I have woken up into this sort of like positive um, momentum um, while the world is like really suffering. And so like, I kind of feel this like, I kind of feel a little like pangs of guilt where I'm like, I don't know. 
uh, I'm just like, I just want to share joy with people and be kind, but I also feel like it might, you know, come off as a little insensitive, um, at times. And I don't want to be like one of those obnoxious people who's like, Hey man, like, you know, like a new age, uh, you know, spiritual uh yoga freak or something hey man just gotta be positive bro (laughs) which you're not coming across as at all by the way oh good because uh my street cred would go right out the window i tell you (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i don't know man i don't i really don't i mean it's like every every day now um not in the throes of like crushing depression which did feel like i was tranquilized a lot and um even forming complete sentences is easier for me now that my brain is not um depressed all the time i mean i i don't know if it's if it seems that way but my brain is not this is space from depression yeah um because you know in depression if you're really depressed you have a hard time remembering stuff you have a hard, you have a hard time like recalling things or being present or, you know, so it was bad for a long time and it got really, really difficult for me to hide, uh, being a sort of, uh, public person. And, uh, it, you know, especially like conventions and stuff. And if I was like having a real, you know, it's like, I mean, it, it, it got very harrowing to hold it all together. Um, to the, to the point where I just stopped going to conventions and I kind of stopped, um, I stopped having tables, you know, where I would be like, people come, you know, meet me or get my book signed or I would sell stuff. I kind of just couldn't handle it anymore. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't perform, you know? And, but now it just, feels like it would be fun like i'd be like let's just party yeah yeah yeah. now you're the complete opposite it feels like a common hell for everybody right now universally across the world seems to be mistaking wounds for their identity do you feel any obligation to make Mm -hmm. a point to your audience that you can embrace your wounds as well as maintain an identity with your work yeah i mean that's kind of like I kind of feel like um, the wound, the wound is also the gift, you know, it's like, it's like the thing that has fucked you up the most is probably the thing that gives you the greatest insight, you know, and it's, it's, I think that people embrace, like need to embrace their wounds, but like, I really love, I, 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 I think that there's a danger of romanticizing wounds you know, and holding sentiment around it. Like, you know, even traditionally with artists being like, they have to be fucked up and degenerates and depressed and, you know, whatever. And and to me, I'm like, yeah, it just feels like a bunch of romantic bullshit, you know? And, uh, I think that the wounds are the things that we, we have to carry with us forever. But if you don't acknowledge the the things that you're feeling, pain or not pain, whatever, it's going to haunt you no matter what. It's going to continue to show up forever. It will always be there. And it gets worse. It gets fucking worse over time. Like even for me, you know, I thought, hey, you know, I've been holding this 
colossal void inside of me for so long and I've been able to hold my life together. It, it was like getting close. I was ruining, ruining my relationship with, with my partner. I was ruining like, like my desire to do anything, any, any other stuff. I mean, like really it, it needed to be acknowledged. And I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have like Prozac. Like, I really don't know like what, yeah. you know, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I also have a, this autoimmune disease called ankylosing spondylitis, which is uh, like a rheumatoid arthritis type thing where your immune system attacks your spine and, wow. it, and it kind of, um, it, yeah, it starts to turn your, your bones into this like weird demon armor. If you, if you like, <laughs> if you Google ankylosing spondylitis, you'll see the most insane images of like bones fused together and all this stuff. Well, I, I also have that and I take an injection to suppress my immune system. Um, I take this injection once a month, Humira. And if I didn't have that, my bones would just be fusing together. Like my hips fused together from the age of 17 to 20. Like my hips are all fused, but I can run and jump and stretch and all that shit. But if I didn't have all this medicine, I'd, I'd basically be an ultra depressed, you know, bone fusing <laughs> skeleton man. <laughs> does, does that impact your work? Does that impact you doing what you do? Oh yeah, man. I mean, um, but I mean, you know, I stretch now and you, you do a lot of stretches, you watch your diet. So you don't eat a lot of inflammatory stuff and right. you know, you're sitting for a long, long time can stiffen up your back and, you just gotta, um, there's a lot of managing this stuff, you know? So I manage it all. And, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, who's that guy? Who's the bass player from Motley Crue? He's the guy, not Nikki six, the other dude, uh, Mick Mars. He right. has, he has ankylosing spondylitis. That's why he's all stiff. He looks like a, like a, like a ghoul, like a stiff ghoul man rocking, <laughs> rocking that bass baby. But, uh, yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it's kind of, it's kind of cool because even though I'm a little sad about my life, I try not to spend too much time thinking about like, what could my life have been? Yeah. You know? Cause yeah. I think like kind of the misery and the suffering and the desire to feel something good kind of pushed me into being this like artist person. So, yeah, man. so it's kind of cool, but like, I don't know, things are revealing themselves all the time for me. And I'm, I'm just, I don't know, like, I'm trying to figure out what I can do to have all this sort of positive energy go somewhere useful, I guess. So I think that's why I'm going to start my Patreon where I make myself a little bit more available to people, um, like artists and creatives or just people and just sort of create like a community that acknowledges mental health, acknowledges, that you know things are difficult but that also acknowledges that your own self-worth is not you know don't let that be predetermined by american capitalism you know apocalypse beauty pageant fucking internet world right you know it's right. like you're it's gonna bigger than that. yeah it's bigger let's all go to the lobby let's all go to the lobby 
Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. You mentioned community a couple of minutes ago. In what ways does Oakland inspire you in your work? Oh, well, first of all, it's basically the 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 heart and soul of this community is like uh social resistance and you know the black panther movement there's so many beautiful people that live here that are from here that have like um have have you know put roots down here i i don't like like somebody who comes to mind is boots riley so cool man like Oh God, he's okay. So here's the other thing, you know, I'm like, Oh, I saw Daniel Klaus at the comic shop. Well, there's a coffee shop down the street that boots Riley would go to. And, and I would see him there and, and we kind of became friends because he was at a, he was at a party, um, at my next door neighbor's house, like five years ago. And, I met him there and I was like, Oh my God, boots, Riley, the coup, like, Holy shit. Yeah. Cause I, I was, Oh my God, dude, this, fu- this is so fucking cool. I can't believe you're here. Like whatever. And he's like, Oh, thanks man. What's up? And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. Cause like, I'm kind of like a hurricane, a fan. Like I become like a, like, I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. So cool to meet you. So I, I try to like, yeah. I try to like tamp it down a little bit. Right. But, right. But then like I gave him, uh, I had my first book came out at that time and I gave it, I gave him a copy and he was like, Oh, cool, man. Like that's, that's neat. He's like, I'm working on a movie right now. And then he started telling me about, you know, his movie, sorry to bother you. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, I'm writing the script. Like I'm getting it all together. And so I was like, Oh my God, dude, that that's so cool. And then, you know, years go, a couple of years go by. I see him at the YMCA and stuff. We, you know, that's the community of Oakland. You see Boots Riley at the goddamn YMCA, man, you know? And so, so like, uh, I would see him and he'd be like, hey, Skater, what's up, man? I'm like, yeah, I can't believe he knows my name. That's so cool. And then, uh, and then like, I would see him at the coffee shop after, uh, I'm sorry to bother you. And, and we would just hang out, shoot the shit. And he would tell me about um, projects he's working on and, different little movies and different little things. And we would just hang and I just, you know, I email him some like little things I make and stuff. He's just been like really cool. And, um, but when, when you think about like the spirit of Oakland in social resistance, like it's only going to pop up with people like that, this sort of, um, like social justice, like, you know, intellectualized, uh, deconstructing the, the white supremacy and the, the creepiness and the class struggle of America and, and, you know, communities and all this stuff. And, um, but, you know, Oakland has changed. It's been impacted by tech and all this shit, but it still remains like the most beautiful city where you can, I go walk around the lake in the middle of the town and you just see every kind of beautiful person just living their lives out there. And it's, it's, like I, I can't, I can't not 
I can't live in a town or a city anymore. I just see a bunch of like unhappy white people. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't, man. Fucking uh, potato heads, man. I seen them, and I seen enough. I seen enough potato heads in my time. You know, they're there. They're, I started seeing these fucking Rush Limbaugh frowns everywhere I Ugh. go, man. Fuck that. So I don't know, man. It's it's uh, Oakland has it. it has like a cool art, deep art um, community and stuff. It's kind of it's kind of changed over time. I think that like the landscape of uh you know like how institutions are like galleries and the internet now and the way just like just the way that everything has shifted and changed um i can't i can't see it not like impacting the cohesiveness of communities as a whole anyways because you know convenience is sort of the tyranny of the modern age it's just like keeps us all mm. separated so you know i don't know I mean, with so much of your work, there's something beneath the surface, whether it's an actual message or the elevated sense of a situation with humans in it that tweaks a part of your mind that provokes you rather than teaches you. Do you find more creativity in using social commentary implicitly than explicitly? Uh, I mean, nobody wants to be nagged at, you know, <laughs> like... I mean, it's also like I, I'm very hyper aware about preaching to the choir anyway, since at a young age. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we live in a we live in a culture that is OK with war and murder and children in cages, but then like thinks you're a total serial killer if you draw like a Satan wizard. You know, it's like right. it's like you, you can't even I mean, <laughs> I mean, I you know, people that. People that don't, we have, I mean, it kind of depends on like how effective you are at managing cognitive disc, you know, disconnect. <laughs> Cause I, um, you know, I guess at some point making art that is fringe is more like a message to other people that they're safe around you in a way, you know, mm. it's like, mm. Like, I kind of, I, I feel like I would rather, I don't want to spend a bunch of time trying to, uh, I don't know, convince close-minded people that it's okay to loosen their buttholes a little bit and embrace that the complexities of the universe are not there to ruin your life, but there to um, make your life more interesting. So it's like spending a bunch of time on that or it's like or I could just, you know, make it more comfortable for like, you know, some marginalized kid in, you know, Arkansas who is feels non-binary or something, but is afraid and, and likes Satan, but is afraid to, you know, hmm. talk about it or something that like they can come to my Instagram and just see like, Hey, what's up? I'm just some weird guy, but I love you and you're okay. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be all right. You know, it's like, I don't know. I think that it's more effective to, um, spread love in that way and then peripherally work on antagonizing the status quo. If it's possible. I mean, it's, it's fun to fuck with, squares though you know what i mean yeah. so it's, it's like, a necessity yeah i mean it's fun i mean everything i mean but you know what the thing is is that the sensitivity the sense the the fragility is at such a fe uh, fevered pitch now 
that it takes like very little to fuck with the squares you know it's like they're whole they're clutching their pearls like they want to you know control western civilization and and keep it looking like a certain way and it's like dude you're you're fighting a losing battle man like why don't you relax enjoy the uh, enjoy the ethiopian food while this mexican uh band plays <laughs> you know it's like right, relax right. motherfucker not everything this, is a hot dog dude there seems to be this common thread in your work as well between seeing people and being seen by people do, do you think that people always see your work on the terms that you want them to view it are there any paintings of yours or work of yours that you feel people, for whatever reasons, missed a mark and didn't understand? Oh, I used to really be more concerned with um, if people were getting my message or not, um, because I think I took myself more serious. Right. And now I'm just like, <laughs> like, you know. How long ago? How long ago are you talking um, about? Are you talking 10 years ago? How far back? Oh, God, a couple years yeah for sure but i think that like i think the thing was was that you know the way that we want to be perceived and the way that we want our work to be perceived is um it's like a very very uh hazardous thing to try to control and i think that if you're kind of like you know if you're kind of like a fringe person who's sort of like you know and I don't even consider myself very fringe. I kind of consider myself like not like an uncool old guy now. You know what I mean? Like when I look online, I'm like, there's all these kids and, and young people doing this insane shit. And I feel like a young person. I feel like a very exuberant, excited, you know, earnest person. But I'm also trying to be very cognizant that like this is their time and you know let them rock their you know their shit and stuff. So I I like um I don't know like I I think that like when I was showing in galleries and from like say 2008 uh 2000 you know 2007 to 2010 2012 mm-hmm. that I was very deeply trying to be seen as like a a you know a sincere serious heavy artist person who had views and intellectual depth and stuff and um hilariously there's nothing more humbling (laughs) to somebody who sees themselves that way than if they're actually in reality just making a bunch of psychedelic Dungeons and Dragons nightmare art and during in the middle of the biggest and maybe last big art like uh, trend of street art, you know? And so I'm like, I'm like, yo, I have a lot to say. I'm sad about the world. I have global dread. I, you know, like uh, I want to, you know, talk about the occult implications of, you know, negativity and the malevolent nature of our world and, and, and like consumerism and all this stuff. They're like, anyways, you're not Banksy. Get out of my face, (laughs) you know? So it's like, it's like, it was very humbling. And it was also kind of funny because, um, it kind of showed me that I can't control trends and I can't control the way I'm seen and that I can't really control anything. And I think that, like, from that moment, um, 
I was trying to anticipate, uh, even though I didn't, I didn't feel like I could control like what moment I was existing in. I felt like I could kind of anticipate what was coming. And so I kind of like very quickly got turned off from galleries. Cause I was like, well, galleries are only effective if you're like the, the, you know, the taste of the moment or whatever. And, um, and I certainly was not that dude, at all, at all, you know? And, um, I think I was like a couple of years before or after it would have been a good time for me. So, you know, th those were, that's, that's probably the moments when that, when that was happening, when I was like right. trying to control it. And now I, now it's like, I mean, even through the internet, like, goddamn, like, if you look at comments from just people online, you realize that the futility of trying to be understood is, it's just an impossible battle. You just have to kind of like do your best, put out the positive vibes, um, roll with it. Yeah. Roll with it, man. You know, it's like, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's intense to experience each other through these filters. It's really fucking weird. It's a it's a very strange social experiment, and the weirdness and the symptoms and the the side effects of it are, reveal themselves constantly. So, how much is it a necessity for you to be able to relax into a certain amount of chaos when you're painting? How much does that matter in your process? Um. Well, I mean, it kind of depends on if it's for me or if it's a timeline for me or if it's, uh, mm. you know, it's kind of like, uh, if I have like a, like a project that needs to be finished in a week <laughs> and, um, you know, I have a few other things going on or whatever, I'm definitely going to do what I can to mitigate chaos to get the project done because it's at that point, it's really about goals. Like what's my goal to get this shit done. Now, mm. when I, now, when I want, what I want to do when I introduce chaos into my, my artwork as a, like a form of, I don't know, enjoying the spontaneity of the, the process, that would be, um, when it's something more for myself, you know, and that's, you know, like, like the, the, the most fun that I'm having right now is working on this oil painting, the cover of, um, uh, skin crawl horror nice. mythology yeah and so um you nice. know i i am clueless to how to oil paint effectively or with any kind of like knowledge um i'm a newbie and uh but not knowing there's this sort of beautiful reconnecting with yourself if you're not good at something you go oh i remember this I remember this not knowing this is going to be funny, you know, and you kind of get to enjoy the uncertainty of it. And you can kind of, um, I don't know. It's because when, when things are kind of blossoming for the first time, it's like such a special moment, you know? So I just kind of go with it. I mean, like when you look at your artwork from the past as like, say a creative person and you see parts of yourself where you're like, Oh my God, that, like, I really didn't know what I was doing, but you, you're like, that was such an important part of my process. It's just, it's so integral, you know, it's like, even though it's somebody might, you know, uh, look at it as say, oh, uh, you're not good yet, 
but you but when you think about it in terms of the longevity and the chronology of your development it's like that was such a special and important time in the process and i think that like we always look at ourselves like unfinished projects and therefore like not doing good yet and it's like no man this is important this is the this is it this is the good part right here where you don't know what you're doing it's amazing and of course the reality is there is no such thing as perfection perfection is imperfection isn't it yeah there i mean that's you know that there's like a and it's i mean well think about like how much sort of excitement there is just in the art world around like kind of like untaught raw artists it's because they're holding within them this sort of special moment this special zeitgeist you know and it's and only lasts for a little time unless you have like a disability and then it's just your whole life and then you become kind of like a famous outsider artist or something you know because you know if you if you have like down syndrome you're gonna do you're you're not you're going to maintain your level of innocence and your level of rawness for as long as you live. That's the beauty of it. Everybody talks shit about people <laughs> that have disabilities as if they aren't contributing to anything. But it's like they're contributing the most. It's like the most pure moment yeah. that is unfiltered. I got into this. Um, uh, I was. <laughs> well, okay. This is a little bit of a tangent. I'll try to, to make it fast. But I there was a. Um, there's a film called Marwin Call about a, a guy who was like an alcoholic asshole who went to a bar one night and said a bunch of rude shit to people in there. And then he got followed and then he got beaten and had brain trauma from his beating. And then when he woke up out of the hospital and he went home, he basically became this like incredible artist creating all these weird dolls and creating all this like um, scenarios and recreating when he got beat and like doing all this weird stuff kind of became this like outsider artist. And uh, <clears throat> so I had brain damage when I was 17 from a car accident and it wasn't major brain damage, but I had like, um, it was pretty, it was pretty bad, but I was fine. I healed up and stuff. And I, I got on this um, panel with a brain neurologist and a museum curator and we were talking and stuff because we were talking about brain damage and art and all this stuff and they were talking about how this fine artist Willem de Kooning uh, basically got dementia and I think Alzheimer's and they were doing a slideshow where they were showing his artwork and they were showing like basically what they were calling the the erosion of his skill and his connection to his art through his dementia um, in his paintings. And I felt like it was really weird to me that people would minimize the experience of somebody who was going through these like desperate moments of their life as if they weren't as important as the other parts. And I was like, you know, this is, this is just as important on the spectrum of what this person is capable of doing as like the other stuff. Like when he had all of his faculties, like the, you know, in fact, I like it better actually, but I'm not a museum and I'm not trying to, uh, you know, ascertain what the value of a collectible artist is because I'm not a psycho, but like, I just think right. that, 
like it's really interesting how you know we're not we're not just judging ourselves judging other people but we're like judging their experiences and they're in like the the heaviness of what it is to be alive and i i think it's just like so fucking bizarre that we do that that we do that to each other i mean like if you know people like think you know that somebody with a disability is like less than but it's like we're only seeing that through the lens of value of the value of which you see stuff like I don't know. It's like really, it's really interesting because like, I think that like, that's the same kind of mentality that had people not thinking that women should be able to do that. Women should be able to do anything but wash dishes and like stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like that, like if we just stop putting fucking limitations on each other as a way to like make ourselves feel comfortable, then, you know, then things would be much better. Yeah, no, I com- completely agree. It's one of the things that, for whatever reasons, we as a species are struggling to struggling to deal with the fact that, like you say, you don't have to maintain the opinion that somebody is less based on their inability. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like uh, I think it's a natural way of trying to survive too. That comes from um, relationships as well, where you know we are like, like even say like with your parents, right? Like say with your mom or your dad and you are wanting them to treat you a certain way and they don't have that ability. They don't have it. It's not in them. They don't want to do it, but they are offering all this other stuff. They're like, they're, and and not only that, they're feeling frustrated and hurt because the things that they're offering you are not being accepted because you want them to do something else. Mm. And it's like, it's really, really weird. And I'm learning this lesson constantly. And I'm a total, you know, mind freak. I'm always thinking about all this shit and like, what am I doing? What are my blind spots in my life? Like, how am I treating people in a way that's unfair to like, the best way in which to like perceive them and like, what can I do? You know? And, uh, I think that like, that's really the thing is, is meeting each other on, 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 on each other's terms. And I think it's really hard, uh, to do that. Um, unless you stay open to the point of, you know, being with that person. Now this is really difficult saying politics. If you, are like, all right, I'm a complete leftist fucking hippie guy who just wants total like chaos and, you know, infinite love and drugs and all this shit. And then I go, I go, all right, well, I, you know, I get to hang out in Oakland and fucking party, you know, it'd be cool. So then I'm like, well, you know, I, I want to like, you know, if somebody goes, well, hey, do you want to come hang out with these like crazy Trump? redneck dudes or whatever i'd be like no fuck no fuck no you know but it's like that fear right there is the thing that's like helping me like feel like i can survive or whatever but it's like if you actually do i mean let's you know let's not i'm not gonna go hang out with them while they're drunk like you know 
shooting rifles or something like that. But it's like, if you just like hang out with somebody, you're like, huh? Like, even if you just listen, like, Oh, that's where you're coming from. Even if it's like dumb as fuck, or if you think it's like really small minded, you just go, Oh, okay, cool. Like I, yeah, I hear that you're scared of things that don't affect you. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right. Yeah. I hear but like, if you go, nah, dude, you're dumb as fuck. Like you just push them further into that, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's crazy. It's such a conundrum, you know, here anyways, but yeah, I want total freedom and love for everybody. You have to kind of like constantly check your own thoughts, your own biases, your own feelings and all this stuff. Like even that thing I was saying about your parents, like, you know, um, when I, I feel like in a lot of ways, like we're always like trying to get things out of each other that like, you know, people are always we're always telling each other like that's I don't have that for you. I don't have that. I have this other thing. I can be this for you or whatever. And people are like, but I don't want you to be that. I want you to be this. And like, I feel like there's always, there's always this sort of like, everybody's kind of secretly trying to figure out how to get what they want from people instead of just, you know, asking for what they want, not getting it and then getting it from the next person who will do that. And I feel like that's the thing is like in our minds, we, we, do what we think that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to anticipate the world and we're trying to like figure it all out in a very neurotic sense, but like being very open and then like honest about it and then honest about what we need and then honest about like what, what's even realistic will like keep you kind of feeling like you're in a better, in, in like a zone where you can kind of like at least stay there and then reach out from it. You know what I mean? It's like, like with my, a lesson I'm having to learn is the, the kind of elation that I feel from not expecting somebody who's showing me that they can't give me the things that I want. If that's love, if that's, you know, friendship, whatever. It, it, and then just, and just accepting that, like accepting them for who they are. And then just, and then you step back and then you take notice like, well, what, what do they give me? Or like, what, what's the thing that they're trying to show me, you know? And then you go, oh, they do this whole other thing that I wasn't even really like appreciating. 
it kind of sounds like probably to most people like too much thinking or something, but I, I really, I don't know, like kind of being humble to the process of just not knowing and trying to learn and stuff. Well, like it really, it, it just helps me. It just helps me a lot. And being in a moment together, right? Collectively understanding that we're all in this moment together and capitalizing on that experience and time to grow together. Yeah. Because there's nothing else. Literally nothing else Absolutely. is happening. <laughs> but there is something else because you told me earlier this week you were currently in pre-production on a few horror films you've written <laughs> and you're creating. <laughs> that was a sweet little transition. That was good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you're a professional. <laughs> no, um, well, okay. So before, um, before COVID hit, I was working on getting in a pre-production on this film i should send you the link to this too but i got it um i don't know if i did actually but uh it's it's called the rite of passage and it's um it's a cool horror film i was gonna try to film it in atlanta with the same team i did budfoot and the mastodon asleep in the deep video with it was gonna go real good it was gonna be cool then covid hit so i stopped um but i have the animatic for it it's really cool and then um but in the last couple years I've been in pre-production on this film called Shrine of Abominations, which is a sort of love letter to Ray Harryhausen, Jack Kirby, and cosmic horror. And, um, and like, you know, King Kong, stuff like that. And uh, I've been working with this guy, Ross Kennedy, and he's been doing all the stop motion and sculpting and stuff. But uh, I've we've been building this world out for a couple of years now. And COVID actually created quite an interesting opportunity for him to spend all of his time <laughs> doing stop motion. And we had finished so much of the um, the puppets, the backgrounds. We have like shitloads of sculptures, of ruins, of temples, uh, building like like animals and wizards. Like it's it's just like it's the most craziest uh like production thing ever because you know something like this would never get funded really because it's just like you know it's like ray harryhausen on you know dmt or something you know it's very very fucking weird so yeah i know i sound it sounds like a no-brainer right but um so i've been working with this raw so we're working on that it's going awesome we'll probably do a kickstarter for it um I'm hoping six months we might have something um, in the meantime, you know, something ready. Um, I could, I should send you, um, I got a lot of stuff to send you, I think. I probably should. So what, what transitioned you from painting to exploring this medium? I mean, has it always been a plan to extend your vision to this? You know what? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of everything that I've done is sort of like one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. <clears throat> but one one yeah. main component that I think that I have is, um, I some I somehow, uh, if, like will open myself up to something and I'll just say I'll I'll, tr- I'll try this thing, and then people will like kind of like it, or or not. But then somebody out there will see it like a weird artist person or, a, you know, and then, and then they will reach out to me and say, hey, I saw you, you did this thing, 
you know, I, I do this other thing, you know, and then I go, Oh, okay. Uh, you want to, let's, you want to do something or you want me to, you know, let's, let's do, let's, let's have a fun time and make this weird project. And they go, okay. And then we kind of like make that project and then somebody else, see, you know, it's just kind of like goes. And so people just like have approached me, um, like Ross, Ken Ross Kennedy is such a cool, weird dude. He's, so, he's like a special individual, um, such a genius, but he, I was at this art show that Wolf Bat, you know, Dennis McNett, he's incredible. I was at his art show, big installation, High on Fire was playing, and I was there with my buddy Frank, uh, Frank Kozik, that, the iconic artist guy. And uh, mm -hmm. we shared a studio above the Hells Angels motorcycle shop in San Francisco for a while. And we would go hang out. And uh, Ross is just, he comes up to me. Uh, and he goes, Hey, how's it going? I'm Ross. And I could tell that he was very, very shy, but he was doing his best to like do his like intro thing. And, um, I was like, Hey man, how's it going? And he's all, Hey, I like monsters too. I make monsters. Uh, I do, I do the stop motion. I do, I can sculpt, I can do, you know, he laid his whole thing out and I was like, Oh cool. Well here, here's my email. Here's my phone number. Give me a call. Let's talk. And then he hits me up, I think like the, in, in, in the, like the next day or so. And then, uh, he goes, Hey, all right, like, let's do something. And then I go, okay. And then he shows me like a couple of examples of a stop motion. And I thought, wow, this is actually really cool. It looks like kind of like bootleg Ray Harryhausen shit. It looks a little like, it looks like heavy metal underground stuff. And so then I, <laughs> I, I hit up my friend at, uh, at Adult Swim, Jason DeMarco, who's basically responsible for anime getting a foothold in America. And then he, he said, and I go, hey, man, can I do a commercial, like some bumps for Adult Swim with this guy? Like, check out this dude's weird shit. And he goes, yeah, sure. So then I use this as an opportunity to kind of like test the, you know, the, um, I don't know, like kind of like the the threshold of professionalism that, that to see if Ross could do this crazy shit. And he did an amazing job and it was, it's incredible. These commercials we did for adult swim. And then I said, all right, uh, you got the goods, baby. Let's make a, a fantasy film, you know? And so I kind of just, you know, I'm very willing and very excited about working with people but sometimes you have to give like a little tester, like a little, you know, like a little like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want this per, I don't want to get this person a bunch of money and like, I just yeah. never hear from them again. <laughs> you know, I don't want this to be like Blackwater, you know, uh, you know, like uh, secret uh, contractors just taking all the money and, and taking off. So it's just like that. And then uh, this other guy, Andy. I met him from the Red Fang video and uh, Studio Super Andy, and he. I meet him. I, I'm, you know, of course I show up. I, you know, begin to get super drunk at the Red Fang. You know, you have to, and uh, the Red Fang video, and then uh, and and I go, hey man, let's let's make a video game thing or something like, you know, let's do something cool, whatever. And then like I just I just kind of kept in contact with him, and then. 
created this concept called flesh haunted lords <laughs> some medieval goblins nice. ghouls and goblins game and then i sent it to him and then he said yeah and we've just been working on it and he's just been sending me updates and doing shit and it's just uh i don't know it's there's some i i feel like there's a lesson i'm supposed to learn about trusting people or something you know where you meet people and you go hey I got an idea. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think about this? You know, and then, and then they go, "All right, let's do it." You know, and then they do it, and I, and and instead of trying to control it, I just see how it's like kind of reveals itself. And you know, there's times when you have to step in and and be like, "Nah, dude, this ain't it." <laughs> like, it's, yeah, we gotta right, do something right, else. Right. Yeah, but because that that's your creation is about maintaining ownership, isn't yeah. it? It's about maintaining ownership, and I know this feeling you speak of too well, and. The collaboration has to be right, is what you're saying, aren't you? It has to be right. Yeah, because there's a lot of people out there who have big ideas and really want to do stuff, but then their follow through is a little bit lacking, you know. And um, but I mean, I've had projects like I I worked on an animated uh, pilot with Blake from Workaholics, who's my buddy. We put it together, and it was amazing, but it didn't really it didn't really get picked up by any companies. And it was one of the things that I felt like, you know, maybe I should just go independent, just do full independent stuff. Because I think there's something extremely sad about really cool, creative people doing a bunch of hard work just to have like, you know, institutions or, or like, you know, uh, company execs just be like yeah i don't get it <laughs> you know just like eh, i don't really yeah. know about that you know and it's like well dude like what do you like what do you know about what i'm doing like what do you think like i don't you know it's like it's just it's too it's too uncertain it dampens the experience oh dude i mean there's nothing worse than like a well shit man when i was working with phil Tippett, you know he's a genius and but like oh, yeah. when I was hanging out working with him, I could see that like decades of dealing with douchebags and uh, executives and studios and you know all this stuff and and you know the 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 kind of just constant grud drudgery of like trying to do your art and not having it go easy and basically proving yourself to be a genius, but then just like what does that even mean in the long run? You know, it's like, is that mm -hmm. how, how much money does that get, give you to be revered in, in, in an antiquated thing like stop motion? It's like, I mean, like the dude is, <clears throat> he was a genius. He did, you know, the great, the most iconic shit of all time. But like, what is it? You know, like we don't live in a culture that's going to inherently be like, Hey, has anybody made sure that Phil Tippett has enough money to live the rest of his life? You know, it's like, it doesn't happen. Mm. So, you know, he's like jaded and stuff, but I did get him to laugh a couple times and, um, he's fun. He's a totally, totally great. But like, you can see that he's just, he's doesn't, you know, people get, uh, people's disenchantment with the things that they love is, is a, you know, can, can show itself sometimes. And it's really, it's really hard to see, but you know, we, we had fun. We had, he, he got some, he got some laughs going. What did you learn from him? Um, 
well, one one thing I learned from him was, um, like, I don't know, like, just, I don't know, you, you may not have all the best, uh, it's, I, I guess, like, this show must go on is kind of the thing I learned from him, because um, there were so many moments where we were, like, filming shit, and it wasn't going well, but you just keep pushing through and you keep trying new things and you, you, you don't give up and you, you know, and there, there's like a lot of stuff that you don't know that will go wrong, but you just kind of like keep pushing through. And, um, and sometimes you got to know when to call it a day too. Cause there was like some moments where you, it was just like, things were not going well. And, um, with some shots and, I could just tell it, oh, dude, it's just time. It's just time to go have like a margarita or something. You know, it's like you can't fight it all the time. So I don't know. The, I mean, I don't even know if those are really lessons or, or so much as um, just things that reinforce like healthy attitudes about creativity, right. you know. Right. Speaking of healthy attitudes and creativity, you've got a brand new collaboration coming up with Tim Heidecker. <laughs> I wish it was a co- of collaborate. No, I I did the. Uh, <laughs> I did. You guys are collaborating, well, I, I mean, though, right? Collaboration with Tim Heidecker. I would say, you know, I'm gonna, I'll go with that for sure. I love Tim Heidecker. He's a, he's my hero, man. He's like maybe, maybe the example. He's like one of my heroes that, like, he showed up in my life when I desperately needed to be able to laugh at how stupid everything was. And, um, over time he's just like kind of stayed my, uh, a hero of mine. But now that I am starting to, uh, I guess collaborate with him, which it's not real. I mean, like I just did some shirt designs for his podcast. (laughs) I don't want to be melodramatic about collaborating with him, but, um, and then, uh, I'm going to moderate the drop concert with Vic Berger and Doug, DJ Doug Pound, Doug Loosenhop on Friday. And I think Very Tim cool. will be there and Doug and Vic, I think. But I I think that, like, as sort of a fan of people, um, and I, I don't mean to be, like, a fan, like, like, I've had enough experiences in my career where I meet people that I've loved and I'm a fan of where I kind of become friends with them. And I'm not weird to them or anything, you know? So it's like, I'm not uncomfortable, but... I think the thing is, is that um, it's very surreal for me to initiate a sort of like non-hierarchical attitude to people that I admire so much, where I'm like, you're the king, baby. I'm just, I'm the, I'm a pawn in the court, you know, instead of just being like, oh, you're my, you're going to be my friend now. That's cool. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I just try to be like, you know, keep the fan vibes down so i'm gonna try to do that on uh uh, friday and that's i mean i'm not i don't even know if you could i mean i'm just moderating the event and i don't even really totally know what that means i'm probably just gonna try to like do my best to speak clearly (laughs) and move the show along (laughs) i guess but um but yeah i want to collaborate more I'm, i'm working on um a show with my friend Alan, I'm right. We're well. He's I wrote 
kind of like a treatment and then he's sort of like writing the script uh alan cordell who was the director for the director and writer for drawing with skinner we both created it together he's helping me um i i basically was like dude let's do like a weird art show like bob ross on acid or something you know, something something cool you know um because i don't feel like there's a lot of i feel like there's a place that needs to be filled in the bob ross peewee's playhouse nightmare world or whatever in our culture so i've been kind of writing you know we're working on that i'm going to pitch that to tim's to abso we'll see if that works i don't know it could um work but uh i don't know man i, I don't I, I have high hopes but like low expectations and i'm just trying to like maintain like a positive uh, and grateful attitude about it Piggy banks to money markets to credit cards coins and cash machines talking about money talking about dollars and cents comic books and ice cream cones paying rent and getting loans talking about money talking about dollars and cents and when you use it you'll see that it's no big mystery if you can count to three then you can make some dollars and cents Money is something you need to learn Something that most people have to earn Something that you can save for a rainy day Money is something you spend and you lend It's in birthday cards that your grandparents send Something that you can choose to give away And when you use it you'll see that it's no big mystery If you can count to three Then you can make some dollars and cents If you can say ABC Then you can make some dollars and cents One of the things we talked about yesterday was your vision and goals to start a union for artists, specifically independent artists like yourself. What are the first steps that people should be taking, both as artists and supporters, to make that a reality? Well, uh, I think developing a inherent, um, an inherent and realistic attitude and a view about your creativity and where you're at, but to have that coupled with basically like you deserve to be treated with respect and this culture uh wants us to kind of grovel and to uh sort of like treat ourselves less than in order to pursue our dreams and our goals and stuff and uh i think that the the that's sort of the intent of our society in a lot of ways is like having us constantly prove our worth. And I think that there's a backwards attitude that goes with, with art where it's like, you know, as creatives, we're informing some of the only reasons to, uh, you know, uh, enjoy our lives through art and music and color and, skateboards video games movies uh just like every single thing art informs your whole life books uh it's just everything and so 
Um, but it's not totally valued in a way that I feel like is realistic or, or fair because, you know, in our culture, it's like if somebody is going to come over and, you know, plumb your toilet or something, you go, you go, Hey, we come fix my toilet. They go, I'll be a hundred bucks, you know, <laughs> or like, that'll be like 75 bucks an hour or whatever. I don't know what the going rate is. And people go, okay, that's cool. Right. And then, but if you're an artist and you spend your whole life being creative and you're constantly in your own time developing this ability and you're focusing on the rhythm, the creative rhythm that you have flowing through your veins and your heart and you're just really in it and you're, you love it. And it's just kind of like beautiful extension of your own experiences and all this stuff. And somebody goes, Hey, can, I want to buy a painting. You go, all right, 200 bucks, which is insanely low in my opinion about for anything. And they go, that's yeah. so much that how about a hundred, how about a hundred dollars? Like you do this all the time for fun, you know? So I think that like, there's this sort of inclination mm. for people to immediately, because it's a conditioned idea to immediately, uh, devalue and, not place it in inherent love or like appreciation for creativity because it doesn't seem like a necessity because a necessity is like, well, I have to flush my toilet. Like, right. Or I, I have to buy groceries as food, but it's like, I think that everybody's so spoiled, you know, and, and with art that, you know, people don't, they don't have like an innate appreciation for it until, you ask them if they could do it and then they immediately tell you they can't they not only can they not but they can't even draw a stick figure that's like the go-to thing that people yeah. say i can't even draw a stick figure it's like you can't even draw a stick figure but you're you feel like you're entitled to draw distinctions between the value of art and and other stuff like or not it's like no no man that's not you that's not your job your job so with art i feel like if artists could kind of realize that the tradition of us needing people to determine our worth or sell our art or be in charge of that stuff, if we, if artists could realize it's, it's, it's your job now to determine all those things and to actually say no and to have healthy boundaries predicated on your own self-worth and, and the, the worth of what you've developed as a creative and an artist then you're going to get treated a lot better. And instead of us competing against each other for like jobs and shit, um, you know, we'll, we'll be like setting the bar for what we collectively deserve. That's why I'm kind of like a union minded artist person where I'm like, you know, van, you know, vans is, is not a bad company or whatever, but one of the early experiences I had was they asked me to do a shirt design and I did one. I said, I'll take, um, I'm divulging this information, but I said, I'll take 700 bucks a shirt design. And they're like, cause I, I at that point I was kind of new. I was kind of swinging for the fences and they said, yeah, sure. We'll give you 700 bucks. I was like, wow. Okay. I also figured they're a massive corporation. They're going to make thousands of dollars off this. So whatever. Well, yeah. then they came back there. Hey, um, uh, you know, we'll give you a, you want to do some shirts designs for us? And I was like, yes, because I need money. I'm broke, you know? And then, and I said 700 bucks for design and they go, well, how about since it's like a promise of 
you know, more work. How about if we, you know, 500 bucks each design? And then I said, no, <laughs> I said, nah, I said, I'm not your guy. And I was angry, you know, and I was angry. And like my ego was hurt because I was like, dude, I'm worth this other, you know, I'm worth 700 bucks, you know, and like, and, and that's an attitude that, you know, that kind of fire I reserve for like large corporations anyways, like when it's like a small band or something, I'm, you know, I don't ride their ass about it and stuff, but like, um, and I said, no, fuck no. And then they're like, all right, we appreciate your passion and stuff. We'll give you 700 bucks each thing. And I think it's like that. It's like those moments where you realize that if you don't just go for the I'm less than I'm worth less than and you kind of lean into the, you know, this is my worth. You'll start to get treated that way. You'll get treated better. And I think that artists are conditioned to accept less because there's this idea that we almost don't deserve more. And it's insane. You know, it's completely fucking yeah. insane. I mean, like uh, Matt Fury, you know, he's like totally disenchanted with like art and all this shit because of the stuff with Pepe. But like people will ask him, you know, to do some artwork or something not has nothing to do with Pepe and he won't want to do it. And then he'll like throw out some like insanely high number. That's totally crazy. And that nobody ever would with like, a you know, like, just, and they say yes, you know? And so it's like, you never know, like, like you, it's a, it's like a totally, not a set in stone thing what your worth is like you have to say what you're worth in your life in your relationships like if people are kind of treating you shitty just be like nah you can't treat me like that dude fuck that you know and then and then either those people are going to treat you better because you have a consistent boundary or you're gonna they're gonna leave you're gonna shed them and then you're gonna surround yourself with people who will adhere to your healthy sense of self and so like i think that it, it, this is a collective self-esteem thing and then it's compounded with creativity like if you're a creative and i think that there's a way of being um reinforcing your own positive self sense of self-worth without being an asshole you know there's there's a way of doing that but you have to almost like not take it personally because the rest of the world is not going to have the same understanding of value as you do so you got to educate these motherfuckers <laughs> and it's and it's the only occupation of course where people do try to negotiate a price I know. Dude, it's unbelievable dude, the biggest metal band in the world i had to say no to because they wouldn't pay me what it was worth for the project are you talking about yes, Metallica? <laughs> what happened well no i mean they uh well the, like the thing is though is that like you, you don't take it personally it's like it's sure. like people have a budget and then they go like, this is my budget. And then you just say like, yeah, that's like for what you want. Like, that's not enough for, for what I can do, you know? And so, you know, you go, Hey, look, I can do, I can do like an insane animated feature, you know? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want that, you know? And I go, all right, well, that's, you know, that's this amount of money. And they're like, that's, that's my management is not wanting to do that or whatever, you know? And so it gets, it gets like, it just becomes a thing where like, 
people don't, you know, and I, it's not even like I'm picking on Metallica. It's like they're they're fucking amazing. No, I like I would, I mean, it would be a dream to work with Metallica, whatever. But I mean, well, I mean, like I don't even whatever i would rather work with tim heidecker honestly i just like tim you know it's like it's like as you get older you get just kind of realize like the things that you want to do it's like well i could do something for a larger entity that is like so awesome but then like how much of your own personal self is flourishing in those moments anyways you know it's like at, yeah. at some point in time you realize that you know, it comes, it really does come back to that, like, sense of, sense of self, like, what's your self-worth, like, you know, do you, being authentic, yeah, do you want to just, do you want to take less and do this other thing, because it's, like, kind of exciting, or do you want to, like, not take on this project, which is, would be great for someone else, and then you just want to, like, pursue your own stuff, and then just, even though you're maybe not making a a bunch of money but at least you're not like you know uh i don't know like kind of like undercutting your own worth you know and so i think that like that's what i mean with like union like a union-minded thing is the world will collectively have to yield um their inability to value what we do if they don't have the easiest access to it you know, it's like, if you say no, people go, all right, I'll give you more, you know, or you go, no, this is what it is. Because there's, there's a lot of times where you set up boundaries and people go, all right, yeah, fuck you, you know, whatever. It's like, we'll go somewhere else or whatever. And I go, Hey, you want to go somewhere else? No problem. And then they go somewhere else and it's not going well. And then they come yeah. and then they come back and they go, dude, <laughs> <laughs> what can, can we can we work something out i go what, show me the money dude or like or like let's you know let's get some resources going here i can't people don't like you get what you pay for and your intentions are reflected in a lot of projects in the end and i just think that like there's so much corner cutting and shit it's just it's not good speaking of corner cutting the good news is quibi has dissolved <laughs> dude I, I didn't even know about quibi i thought but you know what was funny is listening listening to people that i love that i feel like are smart talk shit about quibi is so funny it's yeah. like because they're like saying I mean, this is the thing is like, do you want culture? Do you want entertainment being um, controlled and mitigated by rich, weird, out of touch people? I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's, you know, you get these like bizarre ideas from people where it's like, why don't, why, why doesn't anybody just want to just make something good? You know, just, just make something good. Just like, and then also let things end, let new things begin, let like give support and money to creatives, see what they can do, let them make cool stuff, let them make failures, let them make uh, successes, like, you know, just let it, let it all happen, you know? And that's, I mean, that's why you get a Star Wars, you know, that's why you get uh these amazing films. I don't know if you saw that movie, The Dark Backwards. I didn't. I'm not, I'm not familiar. Tell me more. Well, it, it's interesting because I saw that film and 
it's a very weird underground film. And I, I watched it and I was like, man, why is this movie so good? And it's so weird. And uh, it just feels like a, a uninterrupted piece of art. I was like, this is so strange. I was like, oh, I got, and then I saw that there was, this was when, you know, when I was watching DVDs and shit, and there was a DVD extra on there. And I said, what's on this DVD extra? And it was an interview with the director. And the director was saying that the studio that he got the money from to make the film had essentially all but forgotten about him and his movie. And that, and that he was allowed to just do whatever he wanted. And that he made this film and they, it was like, since it wasn't a blockbuster, since it wasn't like on their radar, he just was able to make the film that he wanted to make. And it's kind of become this like intense uh, cult classic. But I, I remember watching this and thinking like, oh, that's so, it's so interesting that like the reason I like this film is because there aren't these like shadowy record or shadowy executives, you know, throwing in their ideas. And, um, you know, and that's what happens is a lot of times the bureaucracy of these institutions and these industries is because everybody's trying to keep their job. Everybody wants to, you know, have a reason for their job instead of just, you know, allowing artists to make art they want to step in and be like, you know, what if you did this? <laughs> what if you do that? You know? And they go, what, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? He's like, well, you know, what, what about, what about this thing? You know, it's like, everybody wants to feel like an artist, but nobody wants to take, uh, you know, nobody wants to have to pay the price to be the artist. You know, it's, it's weird. Hello. As you can see, I'm an emoji. A meh, to be exact. Anywho, it's my pleasure to announce our first movie. Yay. It's almost too thrilling for words. So bring the family. Doesn't have to be your family. The Emoji Movie. So I told management, I can't work like this. These lights, I'm melting in here. This is such a load of... Uh, no, go ahead. Finish that sentence. Come out and see it this August. I'm positively euphoric right now. I might have to go lay down. You know what I was, uh, I always, I always play this game uh, with my wife where, well, it's mostly me just kind of like uh, do it. Uh, she essentially just endures like a bunch of my like neurotic, weird uh, stream of consciousness bullshit. But we like, whenever we drive, <laughs> we see a, uh, a billboard and it's like a movie I do this thing where I make a, a I I pretend to be the record exe- or the executives like the movie executives 
talk, talking <laughs> about making the film and, and like, and she, you know, she really, she goes along with it because she knows I just, I need attention so bad. And so I just, uh, I, I, so, but we saw this one, remember the emoji movie? Yeah. And so I, yeah. I, I made up this whole thing where it was like a bunch of executives in a room around a table and, uh, and the guy and the main executive, he's like, all right, wh- what do you got guys? What do you got? What, what's, what's a new movie? You know, and the guy's like, well, you know, we got the rock. He wants to do, you know, a new movie called, uh, scary flood in the, in the town. And then we got, you know, we got another Jack Black vehicle. He's like, you know, I don't, I don't like this stuff. He's like, you know what? Let me tell you. He's like, my daughter, she's 10. She's texting me all kinds of emojis all day. I get these emojis, a little, little banana, a little thing. I said, look at these emojis. Look at this. I said, she, she said, she goes, she doesn't, when she don't like what I say, she sent me a little shit emoji. I go, I go, can we, can we just do this? Cause is there any way we could get like, um, you know, any, like, uh, who, who, who can we get for, uh, can we get Samuel L. Jackson to do the voice of this little shit? And like, what do you guys think? You think like an emoji movie? You think who, who should we talk to about that? And then like, literally it would be something like that where some asshole is like, thinks that his small, idea of like just noticing something like just noticing a small thing in the world and then he thinks like i'm a genius i'm a fucking genius you know and then he get, he get, they do, who do you get who do you get to do the voices of the emoji movie who, who's it let me see this real fast i want to see this i mean also yeah uh let me Emoji movie voices. <laughs> pull it up. Let's yeah, pull it who up. Who the fuck are these people? You okay? T.J. Miller, James Corden, Anna Ferris, Patrick uh, Stewart is the poop. No. Yeah, way. dude. Oh, Maya Rudolph. It's not James Corden. No. Oh, James Corden is the high five. Oh, they've got that wrong. Uh, Sophia Vergara is the flamenca, which I guess that's you know. Oh, Stephen Wright. Oh, they pulled him out of retirement as the Mel Meh. Mel Meh. I don't even know what that is. Um, uh, who are these people? Oh, Jeffrey Ross, you son of a bitch. Oh, he's the internet troll. <laughs> <laughs> who are these? Okay. I'm trying to find. I'm like, who's that? Um, who's that actor who was in uh, Silence of the Lambs? I was thinking that would be funny. Uh, Anthony Hopkins. Sir Anthony Hopkins as the shit. I thought that would be funny. Yeah, I don't know who all these people are, but it's just a bunch of, like, weird. Anyways, but, like, I can't believe... Oh, Christina Aguilera. Wait, wait. John Casilla. John Casilla, the voice of the Crypt Keeper. Oh, really? Wait, let me see. John Casilla. Where's he at? Additional voices. He's he's halfway down. The Crypt Keeper. Uh, I want to be that. I want to do that. (laughs) What what (laughs) the hell? Timothy, who's this Timothy Durkin guy? But Ilana Glazer. See, you know what's funny is like I, I I can see my own biases and my own hypocrisy because I'm looking through this list and I'm like, there's so many people where I'm like, ha you're in the Emoji Movie, you're trash, you're garbage, and then I'll see like Ilana Glazer and I'll be like, oh, I love you, I I, I hope you got paid good. <laughs> you know, such- I'm st- I'm a piece of shit, dude straight up let's see but anyway 
that was the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fucking movie the emoji but anyway that's why we oh, live man. in the uh, dead end of western civilization this is what we're doing man oh man but what about your rap man wrap it up the interview where, oh, yeah. where can people <laughs> where, where can people support you where can people support the art that matters right now oh, how, do, okay. how can they keep up how can they keep to date with what well, you're working okay. on okay so my instagram i'm on instagram uh that's where i am uh you know really laying it on thick man and then uh, I have my website, theartistskinner.com, that I just relaunched. And I'm trying to stay on that. And I have a little web store on there. I'm about to release some shirts and sweaters for the holidays. I'm trying not to release, like, I, I kind of, I just want to make, like, paintings and comic books and stuff. But people always hit me up for, like, sweaters and shirts and shit. So I'm going to be releasing some of those very soon. But if you find me on Instagram, I'll be telling y'all about it and um that's where i post all my like movies and animations and stuff like that but um i'm gonna be launching my patreon soon which i hope it to be a inspirational polydimensional experience that people will really enjoy and it will make them feel good and um and that it would allow me to actually spend more time just connecting with people and if i if i was making money doing that then i wouldn't have to like you know do artwork for um you know any kind of situations that i didn't feel comfortable doing i could be like all right well i feel like this is doing more good connecting with people in a community instead of i don't know what what would i be doing fucking t-shirt starring any emoji movie yeah i'd be i well <laughs> <laughs> oh man i would you know what though i would i would be in that movie if, if they needed me skinner thank you so much for joining us on this podcast it's been an absolute blast man oh good i'm glad i i was like at times i was thinking is this is this the part of the podcast where people are just gonna stop listening <laughs> to me <laughs> you know how that happens sometimes oh yeah but yeah, I'm I'm grateful, man. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for taking the time out. Um, I appreciate you. You're you're a thoughtful, sweet person, and this has been awesome. And um, I'll tell everybody about your podcast. And I hope this somehow helps people in some way. I don't know. Everything is chaos. I just trying to do something nice, I guess. Thank you so much. You heard it here on Fly Fidelity, Skinner. Come on, kids. Yeah.
shit I mean for the old though Waiting on the concrete coast to grow Doing lies that ain't possible Counting up all that dough you owe You ain't supposed to know it's supposable We are not disposable Muscle the kick, we got blows to blow To the folks that risen There'll be no decision We make the motor move They show for driven Right now we can't shine Right like a broken prison I'll figure it out The 14th is a broke commitment Squeal on the bus, breaks hands in the air, try to feel for an escape flash in my eyes like candid snaps. When we slap back, it's a magic. 